today as we continue our Christmas or Christmas series, today we're going to talk about distance, the idea of distance. You remember you had to make long distance phone calls? It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like it in some ways, doesn't it? I remember one summer I was uh, between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, I studied for most of the summer in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University, and so I was gone for like a month. And so we didn't have cell phones back then, or at least I didn't. I don't know. I'm sure they had them, but I didn't have one. And so I had to get a calling card, you know, from the store. It had so many minutes on it, and you had to, you know, dial the number and do all the stuff on the back of the card. And you only had so many. So if you bought one for 150 and you're in the middle of a conversation with mom, and you're, done, you're just done, right? It just clicks. So, so I remember those sort of things. It was part of that long-distance communication. It's not that big of a deal now, uh, but even just a few years ago, it was sort of it was a big deal. And I've come to realize, you know, phone booths, we don't really need those anymore. But I do know one reason why we do still need phone booths. Without them, Superman has nowhere to change. So we still need phone booths if for no other reason than Superman needs a little place to have some privacy while he switches from Clark Kent to Superman. So there you go. I looked up some stats on distance. I love these kind of numbers and statistics. So I wanted to share some with you that I found kind of fascinating. Uh, Stats about distance. So uh, the caribou makes an annual migration, or at least a large group of them, every year from Alaska to the Yukon Territory in Canada. That trip is 2,982 miles. They make this trip every year back and forth for when the seasons change. Uh, humpback whales, they have a seasonal migration pattern as well from Costa Rica to Antarctica, which is 5,160 miles they travel. Uh, interesting fact, an albatross can cover over 9,000 miles in a single trip. 9,000 miles. Actually, several years ago, scientists followed a, an albatross that actually circled the globe on their trip, and it took only 46 days for this bird to circumnavigate the globe. That's a great distance covered in a short amount of time. Let's get a bigger scope here for a minute. The closest, what's the closest planet to our planet? You would think Mars, but it's not. It's actually Venus. I was shocked when I was like, of course it's Mars, because we want, we want to go live there eventually, right? You want our, you know, rockets and stuff like that. We don't. But actually, uh, Venus is closer, but it's 25 million miles from Earth. The closest planet to this one is 25 million miles away. The furthest one in our solar system is Neptune. And Neptune is about 2.7 billion miles from Earth. I don't want to make that trip, Okay. Here's, and here's the last one, the, the biggest distance. Actually, the, the furthest galaxy out that we've discovered so far, I'll just tell you its name. It's very, a very cool name. It's Galaxy EGS-ZS8-1. You would think they could come up with a better name than that, but they haven't so far. Anyway, this galaxy, get this, is 13.1 billion light years from our planet. 13.1 billion light years. So light, 186,000 miles per second times 13.1 billion years is how long it would take us to get to that planet. That's some, that's some distance, wouldn't you say? That's some significant distance. But for much of human history, God has seemed maybe that distant. For most of the time that humans have inhabited this planet, God has seemed sometimes 13.1 billion light years away. He seems very detached at times. He seems very cold and distant at times. He seems so far out of reach. 
But in this Christmas series, we're looking at how Christmas can mean more. Moss is the Spanish word for more. So we're focusing on this part of how Christmas can bring us more or can mean more than we sometimes think it really does. And so we're going to look at this idea of distance and see sort of this four-step progression on how Christmas sort of gives us more direct connection to this God that for so often, so long, and even sometimes now much of the time feels distant. We'll see how Christmas, through this progression, gives us more direct connection to God. So again, first we, we see for most of human history, God has seemed very far above us, very far away, very distant. And there's a lot of, you see this a lot in Psalms. Psalm 8 verse 1. We're going to go through a few of these really quick. Psalm 8 verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory where? In the heavens, way up there, inaccessible, distant, far away. I can't quite reach you. I can't quite connect with you. Psalm 14 verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. So God, you know, we always have this picture. He's looking way down, you know. When he gets really curious, he'll just kind of pull the cloud back and just see how things are going. He's just way up there, way distant, lording over his creation. Seems pretty distant. Psalm 28 verse 2 says, Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. I've got a call. Make a long distance phone call. As I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Again, this scripture makes God seem very far away. He's secluded almost. He's in his little holy place, and I've got to try to reach him. I've got to try to call loud enough and yell loud enough and pray hard enough for him to hear me, for my prayers to get through. God seems that way most of the time. And it even translates not just in spatial terms, but sometimes we even see in Scripture where God's distance seems relational. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So in this psalm, the psalmist is saying, God, I'm, I'm, I don't really sense you very close right now. Like, I think you could be, and I wish you were, but I don't, I don't sense that. Where are you when I need you? Why are you so distant? And even the Old Testament prophet prophet Habakkuk sort of has this dialogue with God. If you read, it's a very short sort of conversation between this prophet and God, which is very interesting. You should read it. It's, it's awesome. So Habakkuk's complaint is sort of this. He's like, okay, God, I know you're holy. I know you hate evil. I know you hate sin, but I look around and all I see is evil and sin, and you're nowhere to be found. Why are you so far off? Why don't you come down and do something about all the problems that are on the earth? Why, don't you, why are you distancing yourself from these issues that I know that you don't like and you could do something about, but why don't you? So it's not only spatial distance, but sometimes relational distance that we see from God. And at best, I think sometimes, you know, we said God is above us. I think at best, at times, God does come among us when you read the Old Testament. But it's very sporadic and still very distant. We see this in Psalm 44, verse 1. It says this, We've heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. Because when you see how God works and speaks and moves, really in the Old Testament, you see it very, like he'll speak through a prophet for a few years, and then there's 
space where there's not much. And then he'll raise a king up who's very righteous, and, and they lead. And you know that God's working through them, and you know that he's doing stuff. And so you really kind of feel closer to God during the reign of maybe, you know, King David, for instance. And then there's a space, and then you don't feel God. And then another prophet comes up, and he gets us back feeling closer to God. Or another leader emerges, and we feel that distance being shrunk. But there's always that he's at least at arm's length at best. At best, he's very sporadic, and when we sense him closely, we feel that distance from God. We see that mainly in, for most of human history, that distance from God. So God is above us, but then here's the cool thing. These prophets that God raises up from time to time, they prophesy or predict or talk about a time when God may close that gap just a bit, Especially Isaiah, and this time of year we look at Isaiah because he prophesies about the one who was to come a lot. Someone, so the prophecies are about someone that would come to us. Someone that would come to us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says this, very famous passage this time of year. For to us a child is born. Right To us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So there's a promise, there's a teaser here that someone would come to us to help bridge the gap, the distance between us and God. But the question is, who is that someone that would come to us? Because when you read Isaiah chapter 9 here, and when you read the other prophecies about the one predicted and promised that would come to us, it sounds like someone high and mighty, doesn't it? I mean, they're talking about government, They're going to be a prince of peace. They're going to have some authority. So the ancient Jewish people for hundreds of years looked for this kind of person that would come. He was called their Messiah, their Savior. But they're looking for something specific based on what it appears the prophets are saying. This mighty leader, this maybe governmental guy looking for a king or a prince or somebody with connections, someone who's got some power and authority to change things, to do things. At the very least, they're looking for some sort, of, um, some sort of general to lead an army, especially when the, when the Romans occupy Israel just before Jesus for a couple hundred years. They're constantly looking for the one who's going to lead an army, rattle their sabers, and overthrow the government. They're looking for a zealot who's going to overthrow the government. That's what they're looking for. And there are people who a few hundred years before Jesus, there are a couple of guys who look like they fit the part. And they raise an army, and they, start to, they try to do what they can, but they're not the one that Isaiah and others are looking toward. He, they're, they don't, they're not quite there. So th- there's always been sort of this confusion then as to who's going to come to us. God is above us. Someone's going to come to us to bridge the gap. Who is that? Is it going to be a deliverer like Moses or a king like David? Who is this person going to be? So the people of Israel looked and looked and hoped and hoped and waited and waited for the one who would come to them, the one who would come to us to bridge that gap. They never anticipated that God himself would be the one to come to them. 
That's exactly what he did. We read this verse last week, but let's look at it again. John 1, verse 14. This is John, who's a disciple of Jesus. This is his introduction to who Jesus is. So he, as we looked at last week, the beginning of John's gospel or story or biography about Jesus tells us Jesus is divine. He is God. And so then he says this in verse 14. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So the secret all along that's now been revealed is Jesus is God to us. He's the one that Isaiah prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. To us, a son is born, right? To, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He's talking about Jesus. So again, the people are waiting for a military leader, waiting for royalty to come and be the one to come to us, but God did one better. He came himself through his son, Jesus. He is God to us. But not only then, closely related to that, not only is Jesus God to us, but he is, as we sang this morning, he is God with us. So Jesus came on a mission to us, and he is here to be with us. Christmas is all about this idea of God being with us. So God had this plan. He knew the details all along. He reveals to Isaiah and other prophets and other people who are aware. They sort of have an idea of what's going on, what's about to happen. But then when it comes down to this plan kind of happening to send his son, God realizes, hey, I should probably let the main players in on the plan. You know, like this young teenage girl who's going to birth the son of God. I should probably give her a little bit of a heads up on what's going to happen. She might want to know some details about what's going on. I might want to tell her fiance, Joseph, about what's going on with his girl here because he's going to have some questions and she's not going to have any. So I got to talk to some people and tell them some details. So God sends an angel to talk to Mary first and he says, okay, Mary, you're going to start to notice some changes. <laughs> You're going to start to notice some stuff going on here that's not normal. He's, he said, it's okay, and I'll try to, you know, make this as easy as possible, but you're going to birth the Son of God. And she's like 14, 15 years old, and she's like, well, there's a problem with the baby thing. We, the first part of that hasn't happened yet, you know? And the angel says, it's okay, this is the Holy Spirit doing this. He's performing this miracle in your body for a greater purpose. And she bought it. Right? Like, she's like, okay, sounds good, angel. You know, I, I, this sounds like a great idea. Let's go. Like, she doesn't really have a lot of questions, which I find fascinating. Like, the faith of this young girl is like, oh, she's just, she just, she goes with it. And, and then she, you know, she starts to show, and her fiancé, Joseph, hasn't really gotten the news yet. And he's like, we got a problem here, Mary. There's an, there's an issue here. And so he, the scripture says he's going to quietly divorce her, which he has the right to do according to the law. He can do that. He, now, he's not going to make a scene about it. He's not going to embarrass her. Matthew makes it very clear he's going to quietly do this. He's going to do what's really appropriate culturally, but he's going to do it in a kind of a nice sort of gentle way. So he's about to sign these papers, and he's about to do this, and so an angel then has to visit Joseph and let him in on this secret too. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot something. I got to go talk to Joe because he's going to get concerned. So the angel says, hey Joseph, I know you got some questions. I know Mary has some answers that you're not really buying. You need to buy them. Like, this is for real. This is happening. So the angel lets the main players here in on this secret that 
God is going to not just come to them, but be with them. So then after the angel appears to Joseph, Matthew gives us sort of this little summary snapshot of what's about to happen or what is happening. So Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, Matthew sort of in brackets here takes an aside and lets the reader in on what's going on. So he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew lets the reader in on the secret, on what's going on. God is coming with us. So Jesus came to us to be with us. That's an important distinction that we need to understand. He didn't just come to us to still be distant. So I think that's a reason. I think God knew what he was doing, obviously, why he wouldn't choose a king or a powerful general or leader. Because by default, their position is going to still create quite a bit of distance. You can't just go talk to the king anytime you want. You, you don't feel you have access to that person based on their position, based on their authority, based on who they are. So he chose just a normal family, a normal blue-collar carpenter family from a small town. He did that by design because there's then access to this person. So, and Jesus lived this out with his life. He was what you'd call a man of the people. He was just a normal guy. And even when he started to gain popularity and notoriety and become sort of a celebrity, that didn't change that. In fact, he dug into that. He leaned into that fact. He's like, no, I'm here for them, to be with them, to be one of the people, one of them. And so we see this. He, he's constantly invited to parties and weddings and dinners and all sorts of things. Like he was, he was in there with them. He wasn't saying, oh, no, I'm the Messiah. I can't come to your party. I'm too important. I'm far too busy. No, no. He's like, this is my gig. This is the mission. This is the plan to be with them. God with us. Even his first miracle is performed at a wedding. So we know he's there all the time. He's always, and a lot of the people that he's with are the people that maybe he shouldn't be with. One of the problems that the religious elites had with him is, you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, Jesus. He's like, that's the point. I'm to be with them. I'm God with them. Not just with the religious elites. Again, that creates distance. When you read about the Pharisees that are always trying to catch Jesus in something, trying to trip him up, trying to accuse him falsely of things and eventually get him crucified as an innocent man, they're distant from the people because they're holy and, and they don't mess with those people and they're unclean and I can't be with them. Jesus is like, we're going to cut out the middleman here, you guys. We're going to go straight to the people. And that's what he did. That was what made him so special. Even as he picks his disciples, he, does, he handpicks his crew. He goes on a hunt and finds the guys that he wants. He, I need these 12 guys. I got a list here. And hey, you, you're, you can make my list. Yeah, I'll check. yeah, Peter, hey, just leave your nets. Hey, James and John, leave your nets. Just come follow. He handpicks them by name, the people that he wants. He was a man of the people. He's God with us. Even some of his discussions and miracles that he has show the personal nature of Jesus. That is important to understand. He's God with us. So in John 4, when he is by a well waiting for his disciples to go grab lunch, this woman comes in the middle of the day by herself to get water. Two signs that she's probably not 
the best sort of person in society. Usually the ladies would come early in the morning before it gets hot to get water, and they'd come together in a group. So he sees she's coming by herself in the middle of the day. So she probably doesn't have a lot of friends. She probably has a poor reputation. And guess what? He starts a conversation with her one-on-one. He's a person of the people. He's God with us. And what's great is this conversation, this personal touch that Jesus had changes her life. Because when he talks with her, he reveals to her who he is. And then she goes and tells the whole neighborhood, you will not believe who I just bumped into at the well, the Messiah. And so they come and he's there for a couple days teaching and people are coming in a saving knowledge of him. Their lives are transformed because he chose to be with us. Not above us, not just to us, but with us. And then in Matthew 8, there is a story of a man who has leprosy, which we talked again last week. So people with leprosy, they have to live in their own special colonies by themselves outside of society. They're, they're unclean. They can't be around other people. They're, you just can't be around them. And so Jesus, he's approached by a, a person with leprosy, and Jesus offers basically to heal him. And the man says something interesting. He says, well, Lord, if you are willing, I can be healed. Interesting, because I'm sure he's been approached by other religious leaders who were important, who were godly, who were holy, who were clean, and they would have said, get away. So he approaches him with this mindset. Okay, I believe there's something to this Jesus guy. I believe he is a holy man. I believe he is a righteous man. I believe he is from God, but if he's not willing, I'm stuck. So he says, Lord, if you're willing, I'll be made clean. And Jesus says... I am willing, be healed. He's God with us. God with us. And one more example of this is in Luke 19. Famous story. A man named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. That's what I've been told. I don't know. That's just what I heard when I was a kid. Uh, so he, Jesus come, is coming with his crew in a procession, and everywhere he goes, there's a crowd. Just like today. There's going to be people flocking. Because, again, without... Uh, you know, internet and cell phones, you got to kind of catch him in the moment or you're going to miss it. And so you, if I hear he's in town, I'm going to leave whatever I'm doing and go find him just so I can get a glimpse of this guy. I, say, I can see what's he going to say, what's he going to do. I want to be there to tell my grandkids, hey, I was there when Jesus did this. Hey, you know how John wrote this? I was there. I, I saw with my own eyes. You know, when Luke wrote this, I was there. So Zacchaeus has this similar interest with Jesus. And because of the crowd, he couldn't see, so he finds a low-hanging branch on this tree. He climbs up on this, on this limb and kind, of, and kind of sits there trying to get a glimpse of, if I can just see him, I'll be like, oh, I saw Jesus. He was right there. But not only did Zacchaeus see Jesus, but Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He's personal. He's accessible. He's God with us. So not only did Jesus see him, somehow he knew who he was. Now it says Zacchaeus was a tax collector, so maybe he's, he's dressed in a different way. Like, okay, this guy is rich. You know, he, I, or maybe I've heard I'm in Zacchaeus' territory. I, he's probably not liked very well. And so he, he, somehow he notices him and calls him by name. And he says, hey, Zach, what's up, bro? Hey, I'm going to go to your house for dinner. Meet me there in a couple hours. Like he invites himself over to a tax collector's house for dinner. Again, man of the people. If he, and that's what the Pharisees would always say. If he's really holy and if he's really from God, he would never be around these kinds of people. But he's God with us. 
And just like the woman at the well in John 4, when Jesus has this personal touch with Zacchaeus, that changes his heart. Because he invites him over to his, his house, which is weird, uh, but he does. And he shows up, and his crew is there, and they're having a great time. And just because Jesus was there with him, he gets up, Zacchaeus does, and says, Hey, you know what? I've been a cheat my whole life. My career is cheating people out of money. And I'm going to denounce that life. I'm going to pay back plus interest everyone I've ever cheated. That would have never happened had Jesus not been with us. If he'd remained distant and far away and, well, no, Zacchaeus, you know what you should do. You better get right. No, he, he says, hey, let's just go have some dinner. Let's hang out over a meal. And that personal touch from Jesus changed his life, changed his heart, changed his future, his career. And I would say, based on what we know, his eternity changed because Jesus decided to be God with us. Such a key component to Christmas. But there's one more step that completely bridges the gap, the distance between us and God. And that is, Jesus is also God in us. God in us. Now, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of Christian history that that just makes sense. But at the time, it was a revolutionary idea. Because we've already gone two steps further than anyone ever thought was possible. For everyone else, it was God is above us. God is above us. God is distant. And so when Jesus comes to us to be with us, that just blows people's minds. They don't know how to handle that. They don't know what to do with that. And then when you talk about, no, God can reside in you, that was like, I really can't compute. I really don't know how to wrestle with that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And the first time that we see this idea sort of being explained is in John chapter 3. There's a religious leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was kind of a good guy. I mean, he was kind of tiptoeing because he even comes to Jesus. Now he comes to him at night. He doesn't want his buddies to know that he's having a meeting with Jesus because that wouldn't be good for his street cred. You know, he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. So he's going to meet secretly at night, but he's making a step, making an effort. And he says, okay, Jesus, I, I, what's your deal? He says, like, I believe that you're from God or you couldn't do the things that you do. So Nicodemus, is, is, he's really wrestling with his faith here. Everything he's grown to know and understand about God and faith, he's like, oh, I, th this guy's really messing everything up. And I kind of get it. Like, I'm kind of with him on this. But I, I want to hear it from him. He says, so what's your deal, Jesus? What's going on? And Jesus says, well, Nick, you must be born again. And he's like, what? is that? What does that mean? He says, how can I be born again? How am I going to physically do that? That's impossible. Because again, he has this idea of God is distant. He never has this understanding that God, God can reside inside of me. So Jesus lovingly sort of says, hey dude, seriously, you're the smartest guy in the room and you can't figure this out. Let me break it down for you. So he basically says, hey, this whole faith thing is an inward thing. Like, for you and for all the people, most of the people of Israel, so far to them, faith has been an outward thing. It's what I do. It's the cleanliness of, of everything that I do, everything I eat. I have to, you know, wash certain things in a certain way at a certain time to be holy and clean and pure before God. So holiness, a life of faith to them, is outward. And Jesus says, I'm here to tell you it's inward. And really, when you look at the 
the Old Testament prophets, there's in Ezekiel uh, 36, Ezekiel has this prophecy about a day in the future where he, God says, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh so you can obey the law. So even Ezekiel, even he may have not quite known what that meant, but he's getting at the same idea that Jesus explains in John 3. This whole faith journey is an inward thing. Born again is a spiritual idea. It's an inward work. Now, it does exhibit itself outwardly, yes, but it begins on the inside. Holiness is in, inside out, not outside in. So Jesus explains this to Nicodemus, that cleanliness and holiness is not outward or just ceremonial in nature. What he's saying here is God doesn't just want you to obey him, but he wants you to live life in and through him. That will lead to obedience from your heart, not just from tradition, not just from I ought to or I better or they tell me I should. And he says, no, there is, it's a heart condition. It's an inward work. And then he explains this to his disciples in John 15. Again, he's having this discourse about things are going to change. I'm going to be crucified pretty soon. Then I'm going to be gone from the earth. So he has this with them. Here's how you can do what I'm charging you to do. John 15, start at verse number 4. Jesus says to his, to his disciples, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So God came directly to us through Jesus so we could go directly to him. And he, he bridged that gap. Jesus was with us so we could be with God. That, he's bridging the gap even more now. But now, finally, here's what this passage is really saying to us. Not only did God come to us, not only was God with us through Jesus, but now he wants to be in us. So Jesus became like us so we could become like God. Now that may be a loaded statement. So I'm not saying that we're all divine, okay? I'm not saying that when you accept Christ, you become a God. That's not what that statement is at all. Here's what that statement means. It means that Jesus, through his example, was our blueprint for how to truly please God. Because if I just have these laws about do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, it doesn't give a lot of direction. It's like building something from Ikea. You just kind of have to figure out from the pictures and the diagrams and every what I'm supposed to do. And so I may have this three-tier, you know, dresser drawer thing, but I'm like, I don't, I've made a coffee table because I tried to follow the directions and there's no words in there. That's sort of what the Old Testament law is. You can sort of make your way through, you can sort of get it right, but you're going to be frustrated a lot. You're going to miss the mark a lot. And so Jesus came to give us clearer direction, a blueprint. Here's how we really do this. Here's how you can make that happen. But not only was he the blueprint for how to do it, but his spirit abides in those that believe in him to give us the ability to do it. 
Because here's the thing, I may have the directions on how to build this thing. If I don't have the tools to build it, it's not going to get built. If I don't have the ability to build it, it will not happen. I can't just magically, you know, throw these pieces up in the air and they just poof, they become what it's supposed to be on the box. I've got to have the ability to make it. So the spirit of Christ living in those that are in him, okay, so he uses that term. If you're in me and I'm in you, it's both. So as we live in Christ, it's, we, we do that only because he is living in us. So it, his spirit in us gives us the ability to please God. Not just the knowledge on how to do it, not just that I know I should, but the want to, to want to. The desire to live in a way that pleases God. So as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, without God's spirit in me, I'm dead. I'm done. There, there's, I'm, I'm alive physically, but spiritually inside, there's nobody home. I'm just a corpse inside. But with the Spirit of Christ dwelling in me, I am, as Jesus said, born again. I am truly alive for the first time. I am truly, as the psalmist said, seeking after God. I am truly then pointing others to this loving, redeeming, and personally present God. I can't do that without God being in me through his son Jesus. So again, for so long, God seemed above us, so distant, so far away. And then God, through Jesus, came to us to be with us. And now, even though he's not with us physically, he is now in us spiritually to give us the way and the ability to truly live a life that pleases God. That's what makes Christmas so amazing, is that God would go to those lengths to bridge that gap of distance. Like, he knew there was distance. Like, he... I'm an eternal, you know, perfect, holy being, and these are my created, imperfect, uh, non-eternal beings. There's distance there. God knew that. He wasn't unaware of the distance. And because he was aware of that and because he wanted to bridge that gap, he did everything he could do to bridge the gap. He did everything he could to fill in that distance, to make this way that we could access him. And one way that I what wasn't going to mention, but I will as I close, is the way that we have this access to God or, or an image of that, a depiction of that, is on the cross. We talked about last week in the temple, there's a small room in the back of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And again, last week we talked about only the high priest, one person on one day, the day of atonement, one guy one day a year can go in that room, and he must be perfectly clean and pure. So, there's that distance between us and God that's depicted in this huge curtain uh, that closes this room off to everybody else. On the cross, the scripture records, the gospels record that when Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain was supernaturally torn in half. So that symbolized when Jesus said it's finished, that's part of that. Now this distance between us and God is not there. It is still there spatially, like God's still way up. He is still above us in that way. But in every other sense, God is now perfectly, personally present 
in our lives. He, we have access to him. We don't have to wait for one day a year for somebody else to atone for our sins. Jesus on the cross fulfilled that. He bridged that gap completely. So we have direct access to God. Paul even writes that we have access to the throne of God. So when you pray, you don't have to pray to somebody else that they can get their prayer to God for you. You don't have to wonder, is God going to hear me? Am I good? It's like, no, there's access, direct access to God. That's the beauty and the joy and the wonder of Christmas is that now we have direct access to God who seems so distant, so far away. Now he's close. He is, he came to us to be with us and now lives in us. What a wonderful thought this Christmas season.